0: Show you a better
1: way Hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is December the 4th, 2019. This is episode 2559 of the Survival Podcast. It's Wednesday and a regularly scheduled week. That means it would be interview day. Guess what? It's a regularly scheduled week. It's interview day. Yep, Rob Greenfield is returning to the Survival Podcast. Those of you who haven't heard from Rob before, he was on July the 3rd, 2019, just about five months ago, and I realized something. There's actually probably a lot of you who didn't hear Rob's first interview because it was July the 3rd. You're like heading into a vacation day. Uh, So a lot of you probably did, a lot of you didn't. If you didn't, you might... I'm not saying you need to, but you might want to go listen to that episode first. I'll have a link in the show notes for you if you want to go and listen to that older episode. But Rob is an awesome dude, man. Um, I'll tell you, he's uh, he's a modern-day hero. And I don't say that in, in any sense to be taken lightly. In fact... I'll save my thoughts on that for our quote of the day today that has to do with ordinary people being the true heroes in the world. Uh, but Rob lived for, a hun- for 365 consecutive days, 100% on food that either grew himself or he foraged. And when I say 100%, I mean like if he wanted to put salt on his food, he went to the ocean and dehydrated ocean water to get salt. That's the level that I mean. 100% of his food and medicine came from food that he either foraged or grew himself. And he did a lot of good while he was in Florida as well. Set up community gardens, community fruit trees, uh, seed exchanges. Just did a a tremendous amount of good. He also had some struggles. As you might imagine, living that way, his uh, protein and fat intake became deficient. He ended up having to take a trip to complete his journey uh, to get enough fat and protein. And we'll be talking about that today as well. Anyway, just a fantastic dude, really an inspi- inspiration. Uh, I always look at what you're looking for from people like this is that they create this reaction to people. Well, if they can, I can too. And that, as you'll hear as we talk about this today together, it doesn't mean they, that they have to create the impact that you'll do everything they do. But will you take a few steps because of them? I guarantee you, when you listen to Rob and if you look more into his life, you'll find yourself taking those positive steps. Before I bring Rob on, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of day number one today is RidgeWallet.com. Rob's a minimalist. I have tried to be a minimalist. I still indulge quite a bit, I'll be honest. But one place I have minimized is in my everyday carry, and specifically my wallet. For decades, I carried a classic billfold, bifold billfold. And uh, I always thought I needed all the crap that was in there. And when I got rid of it, my life got just a little bit better. Additionally, Ridge Wallet protects me from identity theft, I carry it in my front pocket kind of like it was a liner lock knife. I never forget it, and I don't sit down on a big lump and screw my posture up anymore when I'm in my vehicle or what have you. And because I don't take it out of my pocket due to that, I don't ever forget it. Ridge Wallet is awesome, But about every time I pay with it, I have somebody say, hey, that's the Ridge Wallet. I had no idea they were that well-known when I took them on as a sponsor. Uh, They sent me a wallet over two years ago now, and uh, I started carrying it. I haven't carried anything else ever since. Check them out today at RidgeWallet.com. Remember, MSB members... You get a discount, 10% off everything at Ridge Wallet. Next up today, JM Bullion. Um, you know, I don't carry a lot of silver and gold around in my wallet. Silver and gold is something that I, I put away for a truly rainy day. But I do that because silver and gold have been used as money for about as long as there's been something that had the concept of being money. And they've never been worth nothing. Now, I'm not an all-in guy. I don't recommend that people go get rid of all their you know, stupid money and buy silver and gold. Well, I think that's a foolish, foolish recommendation. And some people in the industry honestly make that. Like, your money's burning. Go buy silver. No, no. I recommend about 5% of your net wealth in silver or gold, up to 10%. But my my recommendation, and if you emulate me, you'll do about 5%. That is a wealth insurance and wealth assurance policy. It's also a form of wealth that you can pass down to your heirs and nobody needs to know about it. It can be done in advance. You know, as you get to be older and toward the twilight of your life and you know you're going to go out and and have what you need, if you want to, just pick up a box of silver or gold and hand it to your heir. And, And as we say here in Texas, it's between me, you, and the fence post. It's an anonymous form of wealth to transfer. If you have somebody that you want to do business with, you trade silver and gold with them. Don't nobody need to know about it. I love direct relationships, eliminating third parties, especially if that third party is the state. I don't know a better way to do it than silver and gold. Check out JM Bullion because you get a discount if you spend over 300 bucks. You get free shipping no matter what you spend. Um, the the president I have direct contact to if there's ever a problem, and there just ain't been any in years, uh, and they have been supporting this show for eight years now. So, why would you get your silver and gold from anybody else? The whole point is it's all the same. An American Silver Eagle is an American Silver Eagle. If you get it from Jam Bullion, you pay less, you get free shipping, you get a discount if you buy a bunch of them, and you support the show by supporting our sponsor. It's win, win, win. Check them out today, jambullion.com. With that, let's, uh, let's get into this. Before I bring Rob on, I said Rob's a hero. And when I was looking for our quote of the day, which, by the way, has become kind of my favorite introductory segment we've ever done, more than the history segments or Ask Clowns and Heroes, if you've been around long enough to remember that. I mean, this I'm really enjoying because there's always a quote to fit the show. When I was looking for it today, I came across one by Christopher Reeve. Christopher Reeve, of course, was the actor that played Superman in the 80s, uh, the Superman that many people in this audience grew up knowing from the Superman movies. Uh, who unfortunately was injured uh, in an equestrian event and uh, was paralyzed from the mid-chest down and never walked again and eventually died of complications from those injuries. This is what he said about heroes, though. He said, a hero is an ordinary individual who finds the strength to persevere and endure in spite of overwhelming obstacles. So if I'm going to use that definition, then to say Rob Greenfield is a hero is, is nothing but a statement of fact a man who goes to a strange place he's really never been before without a lot of skills, because Rob's a really, really smart guy and a really sharp guy and a really dedicated guy, but you're going to hear he had a pretty thin skill set when he started this out. Goes there, sets up camp in somebody's backyard, says, I'm going to live for 12 months on what I can scrape up out of the wild and what I can grow to put on my plate, and then does it? I'll tell you what, if that's not an individual who finds the strength to persevere and endure in spite of overwhelming obstacles, I don't know what is. And with that, I want to say, hey, Rob, welcome back to the Survival Podcast.
0: Hey, Jack, it's good to be
1: back. Last time we chatted, it was right at five months ago. It was was July. You were a little more than halfway through your adventure of growing and foraging 100% of your own food for a year, living in a tiny house in Florida. Since you have finished up that commitment and got it done, um, kind of leading off, what was what was it like between like the time we talked last and actually getting to the end of that?
0: Whew. <laughs> that feels like a long time ago. So much <laughs> has happened in between. I remember I was sitting outside over at my friend's house using the Internet, and it was a – hot summer day, it was probably 90, 95 degrees, it might have even been like 105 with heat index, I remember that's when we were having some major heat, and um, and now I'm in New York City at the moment, and it's freezing out, and I haven't gotten around to getting shoes yet, because I just got up here from Florida, and I'm freezing my butt off, and I finished the project, um, so you know, so much has happened in between. Right after I talked to you was about the time when I ran into the most challenging part of the year, which was I just started to become deficient. I didn't have enough protein and fat and was starting to worry whether I was getting enough and, you know, what might be the repercussions to my health. So that was right around the time when I went through the most challenging part of the year.
1: Yeah, I remember. I, I was pretty concerned about you. You, were, you, you posted some photos on uh, Facebook, and you could see that uh, the stress was getting to you. And I've, I've explained to people that there are essential proteins and there are essential fats. And while I'm not I'm not putting down carbohydrates, there's no such thing as an essential one. Uh, but you can be deficient in both protein and fat in your diet. And you kind of went up north for a while, uh what did what did that lead to, and and how did that impact your health? Because that was something I was I was legitimately concerned for you in the
0: challenge with. Yeah, and I know, and I remember you commented like, "Dude, go to the pond. There's bluegill everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, there's there's fish, there's fish in every body of water in Florida," which I completely know. And yeah, um, for some reason, I just I I grew up fishing. I've been fishing since I was eight years old. Um, you know, when I was sixteen, I. I remember I went fishing 180 days of the year, so every other day um, I've been – fishing has been a huge part of my life, and I always considered myself pretty darn good at it. But this year (laughs) I was just not able to catch enough or necessarily the right fish. Um, And so it was just after we talked – that I actually took a trip up to, the, up to the Great Lakes region, up to Wisconsin where I'm from. And I did that for many reasons. One of the foundational reasons is I just had this strong calling to go up there and to really connect with the land where I was from, really connect to the plants up there that I had walked past for two decades and never really thought about my relationship to them and the, the medicinal value and the nutritional value. I felt a strong calling and then also I just – I truly did need a break from the heat of Florida's summer and to go up to paradise. I mean northern Wisconsin where I'm from is – it's a truly amazing place. So um, so I went up there and I I was already feeling maybe a little deficient when I left but it was actually the travel up there, two days in a car um, and I didn't really have any protein. I was unsuccessful at catching fish and, and – and uh, preparing them for the travels and then I stayed in uh, my aunt's third uh, 23rd story apartment in Chicago for a week when I first got there and didn't do any fishing and so by the time I actually got up to northern Wisconsin I was even more depleted Mm. and then in northern Wisconsin I guess I had somewhat overlooked the fact that July is the dog days of summer like the, the water's really warm and it's hard it's the hardest time of year to really catch fish because they've moved into deep waters and a lot of them have moved deep offshore. So I even had a hard time catching fish at there at the beginning and I kept a multiple of my friends that I went out with said this is the worst fishing that I ever remember. Everybody was like we started to think I was cursed. <laughs> and and then I went out lake trout fishing, and um, this was actually one of the most difficult days of the year. I caught a big, fat, twenty pound lake trout. So we're talking about you know a pound of. You, I mean, I could be eating a pound of fish a day for two to three weeks, and that's like the fattiest fish out there. Exactly that's what nice. I needed. Exactly the fish I needed was in my hands on the boat. And then I asked that my friend. I said, "What would you do with this fish?" And he said, I would let it go. And so it was his boat. And so I let it go, like, remorsefully, like, this is what I need right now. And then an hour later, he says to me, wait a sec. You asked me what I would do with this. And I said, (laughs) let it go. Were you asking if you could keep the fish? And I was like, yeah, that's basically what I was asking. He's like, dude, you totally could have kept the fish. I was just saying what I would do. I just literally answered your question. Because he catches tons of lake trout sure. and he always puts back the big ones, and still I wanted to put back the big ones because those are the big, big producers, they you know breeding. Yeah. But but there's there, no shortage think... of
1: lake trout, dude. There I mean.
0: I know it was it was a crazy mistake and it hurt for days.
1: Oh. <laughs> you know I remember when you wrote me back. I, I, I gave you like the Jack Spirico kid in Florida technique for catching yeah. gills and bull- bullheads, and you said something I hadn't thought about. And that was like all the ponds around you were like constantly were sprayed around the edges uh. with herbicides and stuff. And I guess I hadn't really thought of that because I, when I grew up in Florida, that wasn't the case. It just mm. really wasn't. Ha- I mean, I'm just talking 70s and 80s. Yeah. And out here in Texas, you might think it would be that way here, too. It's not like. I don't know, like parks and stuff around here, they're like, you know, what grows, grows. Uh, and yep. ironically, I had a segment I ran from Jeff Lawton about a month ago, and he was in Florida, and I had talked to him about yeah. the red tide issues and all, and he was sitting in a Walmart parking lot looking at one of the many drainage ponds and talking about exactly what you were. And I was like, yeah. you know, this is great resource that's being destroyed because, God forbid, some clover grow in the
0: lawn. Oh, they are truly toxic places. They are just, I mean, I watched them walk all the way, literally right around the edge of these lakes and these ponds, and they spray literally right around the edge. So it might might rain an hour later, and 90% of those pesticides are right into the water. And a lot of them, you can tell, they're not the right color. You never see that color in a natural setting. So yeah, I, I avoided those the, a lot of those because they are fairly toxic. And then honestly, the, the bluegill thing was just oh, the work with each <laughs> cutting each bluegill. It's honestly when you're doing that's one of the big lessons I got from the year. It's when you're doing everything, then everything is challenge. Then then building it all together is challenging. When Every most anything on its own is not that challenging when it comes to surviving, simple living, sustainability. But when you're trying to piece it all together and grow and forage literally everything you need, then it's a whole different story because the sheer amount of time that it takes or the amount of research it takes to figure out each individual thing and it just adds up to a whole different thing.
1: Yeah. See, my thing with that was I was like the bluegill or the bait, right? So as long as you as long as you can catch a couple bluegill, you can catch a couple dozen uh, bullhead cats.
0: Yeah. what do you
1: have going on there, man? Because there's a ton of background noise. Oh, sorry.
0: Let me walk away from that.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> it I sounds was like somebody's cooking. making tea or something. I don't know. I actually, I'm actually, i actually still cooking some venison right now. Oh, okay. And, and I just walked over there to check it really quick. That's actually – the project's over, but I stopped at Joel Salatin's Polyface Farm. Um, on my way up here to New York and, um, his, some people were cleaning some, some deer and I just grabbed all the scraps and, uh, froze them and brought them with me. So I didn't want to buy meat when I was, I don't want to buy meat at all. So to be able to pop in there and grab 15 pounds of venison that would have gone to waste and now I can cook that, that's good.
1: So if you did do this again, uh, in some way, shape or form, um, would you maybe select a different biome for it?
0: Yeah, yeah. And just to, I guess, for the people that don't know, go back and summarize what happened. I ended up catching enough fish, and I ended up getting some, some deer that were hit by cars, and and uh, built my, f- my fat back up in protein. And it took about a month or so, but once I caught enough fish and once I got enough protein, then I... Built my body fat up, body fat back up, and I ended with the amount of fat that I needed and protein.
1: So again, back to the biome thing, like because when you know when you first started doing this, it's like, well, Central Florida—that makes a lot of sense because you can grow year-round. Um, you're not going to freeze to death. It does get very hot, but especially if you don't have access to abundant quality fish protein is a real problem in that that biome compared to some other biomes
0: mm, i agree yeah a lot of people you know the one of the most common questions or comments on social media is just oh you can do this because you're in a warm place and you can grow food year round." but um on my trip to wisconsin you know northern united states a temperate climate i experienced abundance like there like i never experienced in florida you know the abundance there is real it's a it, it, it comes not all the time whereas Florida is like a trickle there's always f- some food but in these temperate climates there's just an insane plethora of food for a shorter shorter period of time and you have to harvest it and you have to store it and in these northern climates you know the deer are bigger
1: mm-hmm.
0: of course you know we there's a lot there's i'm not there's a lot of protein and there's a lot of food in the southern climates but The northern climates are in some ways more acclimated to really living more connected to the land and to living more self-sufficiently. And so, yes, my plan is to do this again, and I'm going to do it in a temperate climate. Um, Top choices right now are either New York or Wisconsin or possibly Vermont, Um, you know, a pretty temperate climate and – See if I can do it there, and I'm I'm excited. And honestly, we'll see what happens. But I, I part of me thinks it's going to be easier in some ways. But only time will tell. I'll have to do it to find out.
1: As long as you have the right clothing and the right heating
0: source, I think I think it will be. I mean, those yeah. th- that's going to be the issues there. Uh, yeah, and and that'll be easy enough. Just. You know, don't try to live in a non-insulated shed like no. I did in Florida. Live in a quality insulated house with a good heating source and good clothes. And I, I think it'll—I think it's going to be a beautiful experience. It will be challenging. It'll be new, cha- different challenges, new challenges.
1: Absolutely. I I, I recently discovered a, a, a series on Netflix. It'll sound like it has nothing to do with all this when I first say what it is. But I constantly thought of your project. During it, it's called Mars, and it's it's kind of a half science fiction and half fact thing, like like a, a a scientific documentary hybrid, where like it's set in the modern day in 2016 of all the things that they're doing now with the space program to eventually go to Mars, and it's also set in about twenty the 2030s 2040s as to what it looks like when man first gets there, and they're talking about the challenges of feeding people and all i could think of was that when they were talking about you know greenhouses and using led lights and everything is good lord you have no idea what you're really getting at here because if it's hard to do this and actually sustain life on earth the concept that you're going to have a greenhouse and grow food that's enough to not, not yes you can grow you can it can be done the technology exists we can grow you know a, a sweet potato in space we can do that But to actually supply the food that people need to be healthy, there has to be some sort of a fat protein uh, quotient in it. I know the vegans out there right now are going, yeah, you can do it. You can do it on earth with supplements. Like Mm -hmm. if you really want to live off of a system from a natural system, to me, animals have to be a part of it. And I sit there and go, how the heck would you do this? It, on Mars, and maybe we should spend a little bit more time thinking about how not to screw up
0: Earth. Yeah, it would be nice to just not screw up Earth. I mean, we got a beautiful place. It's a, it's an amazing place where all of our needs are met if we can just work with the Earth rather than against it.
1: It is an interesting way to start looking at things, though, because it, what it had me doing is thinking, well, if I had to build a settlement in West Texas, you know, in the desert, how would I do it? And it would be so much easier than it would be on Freaking Mars! Come on, um, but yet it would still be incredibly difficult. It would be incredibly difficult to do that in that environment. Um, in Texas, et, et, yeah, I'm just you know like West Texas. Like there's places out yep. in West Texas you can buy land for like a hundred bucks an acre. You know why? Because no one wants it. Mm-hmm. I mean, like it is that harsh. It honestly, if you look at a picture of the Martian landscape and you look at a picture of it, there might be an odd bit of sagebrush rush here and there but it doesn't look much different and mm. you put yourself in that mindset of how would you sustain people, a hundred people a settlement of a hundred people pretty modest settlement in that environment and i think what it does then is it starts to make you think about what you could do and 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 the reason i that kind of relates back to you is what i see out of your work is that most people that follow you and watch your work aren't going to do what you do, but they're going to say, what could I do from that? I think it's an interesting way to start looking at, look at what looks like an extreme and pair back to what can be done. And I think then you figure out there's a lot of things we could do. There's a lot of ways we could introduce animals into a system. That was one of your challenges. I know people kept telling you, get chickens, get chickens. And you're like, but I can't import food to feed the chicken, right? So you got to think, how do I feed the chicken from the system?
0: Yeah. And that, and, and some people did send me some links about how to do chickens completely without importing any feeds, but I was in a backyard in a Mm -hmm. city and I don't, I still haven't looked at those links. It's something that I want to learn about, but that, but the point is, is that like, that's what it's really about. It's about thinking much more deeply and really questioning things. And we, we live in a system where it's like, You can just import whatever resource you need, but I like to really question where those resources come from and what the actual impact is. I mean, for example, you can say how you know productivity is often described as how many how much food you can get out of a square acre. But if you're using twenty, you know, let's let's just say you're using thirty gallons of gasoline per day on that acre, but you don't include that, then that's a completely inaccurate way of looking at productivity because where did those resources come from and how do you not take that into account? And for me, yeah, that's what it's all about. It's just it's about questioning our daily actions and, and, uh, and really just thinking about the intricacies of our life and, and how our, our actions as people and as a community affect the world around us. I think there's
1: also, like, there's skill set development and time and labor in that equation that it's real easy for someone to sit back and watch you on Instagram or something and say, hey, just do this. It's another thing for mm. you to actually have to go do it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you kind of mentioned it before, like, how much work it is to clean a fish or whatever. And then there's, a, there's like, a developmental skill set. So, like, if we took it back to that for a second, like fishing. So, you know, I gave you some tips on bluegill and uh, catfish. Well, then if you use the bluegill for bait and catch catfish, all of a sudden you've got a fattier fish, higher up the food chain, and easier to clean. But that mm-hmm. assumes that you know all of those things. So there's a skill set development. It also assumes you have the time to do it. So now you bring the chickens back. Oh, one way we could do that, and I don't know if this would have fit your project or not, if tying into a waste stream would have been okay yeah. in the spirit of your product. But what would it be is restaurant waste to the chickens. That's one way they did it at uh, the PRI in Australia with Jeff Lawton and chickens. And they proved it could be done. Okay, but now Rob's got to worry about, like, tending his gardens, growing his food, preserving food for next year. And, oh, gee, just just five times a week, take your bicycle <laughs> and go get a whole crap load of restaurant waste and bring it to the chickens. But put two people in that with a common goal, mm, yeah. and doesn't it get easier Or if you put four or six or 12, almost like a small a tribe environment? Um, yes. That seems like – and I was always wondering if like, maybe if you do this again, maybe if you go more that route. But then you have to also at the same time when you have people living in close proximity, in the words of Paul Wheaton, try to do this without having a knife fight once a week, right? Mm, so then like yeah. you have to balance people. And Um, it it just seems like you have to find a way to to find that balance to live happily as a species, as humans, with one person can't do everything, and then when you add more people, not only do you get more labor uh, hours available, but you get more knowledge and skill base. So when you look at how small ecosystems of humans developed in the past – you know, one person might have two or three things that they were primarily responsible for, another person, another two or three things. And even if there was overlap and everybody could do a little bit of everything, having that division of labor made this a lot more doable.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the, the exact project that I set up is is very much not a realistic scenario. There's no reason why any human would do this on their own. Um, except that I was trying to prove something and I was trying to – I was an experiment, a grand experiment. And then at the same time, it wasn't alone because I had volunteers come to my garden. All of my knowledge came from fellow foragers and gardeners. Everything that I did was just an accumulation of the knowledge of, of many people. I just took all of that knowledge and I put it into one package in order to grow and forage all my own food for a year. So in no way did I do it alone really at all. Um, And that's next time I do this, my my general idea right now is to do it on an already established piece of land, such as a small farm, where there is some fruit trees and a garden and things like that, and where I don't start from scratch because the reality is is that anybody who's going to try to live completely self-sufficiently isn't going to start from scratch. They're going to probably build it up over 5, 10, 20 years. And so instead, I'm going to start off on a small, in a community. So I'll have the community element and then on a small farm so that it's, you know, it is a setting that is much more likely what somebody else would be in and, um, and doing it with other people. So it should, that, that should make it honestly a more enjoyable and probably easier experience in that way but with that being said I'm still glad that I did it this way with it this was the this was the truly challenging way to do it and I learned so much by having personally to start from scratch
1: that had to be really really tough because let's talk about your background a little bit you've done some pretty cool things but you really didn't have you would have called yourself even an experienced gardener you wouldn't have called yourself an experienced forager. You might have called yourself an experienced fisherman, but I think you learned a little something about like that doesn't always translate regionally yeah. uh, and species-wise. So you were starting with a lot of drive and desire, a strong sense of purpose and commitment, but a pretty thin skill set.
0: Yes, I did have a permaculture design certificate and I had visited a lot of farms and gardens and such. But as far as actually planting food from seeds and being there and watching it grow and, and harvesting it, the whole process is something that I was ridiculously inexperienced at. Um, I, when I started, I didn't know how much sun a garden needed. And actually, I was, I gave a presentation uh, at the local permaculture group, and I was putting together the presentation. This was like the day, two days after the project ended, I was putting it together. And I was looking for pictures at, from the beginning, and I found a picture of myself with, uh, and my friend with the little greenhouse that I had made. And it was in a patio with no natural lighting. <laughs> And no grow lights, <laughs> and I didn't realize that the plants wouldn't even really grow. I was like pretty darn clueless as far as growing food water, sun, soil, the basics. so I really was starting from scratch and and honestly, I still consider myself a beginner gardener. I did grow a hundred different foods, different plants, and I did f- and I still consider myself a beginner forager. I, I foraged over 200, about 200 species of food, but I still consider myself a beginner forager. And I, I, can, I generally have a pretty good knowledge of foraging and growing, but still I, I would still, even after this whole project, consider myself a beginner.
1: Let's talk a little bit about those numbers. So you grew 100 different uh, – actually over 100 different foods. Um, but did you find that there was a core – that actually were what really fed you.
0: Yeah, I was very carb, carbohydrate based, which many societies that live for long periods of time seem to be. They carbs, they they have the energy to keep us alive, and so that was that was a a big thing. Was just the carbs. Now, for me, it was too much carbs. I actually that was a big challenge. I was eating like four. On many days, I was eating four pounds of sweet potatoes or yucca or yams, and it wasn't my favorite diet, but that's what I had. That's what I was able to grow really well. Um, but so, yeah, so that was a, a big staple. I also grew a lot of green papaya. Um, bananas were another staple. Greens, um, I probably grew a few dozen different greens, and that was my one of my main source of Nutrients, uh, mostly perennial greens, things like moringa, katuk, chaya. I also grew pigeon peas and southern peas. And then I grew some annuals like beets and carrots, eggplant, peppers, um, you know, some green beans, some potatoes, um, and then lots of herbs and spices. Um, that would be a decent summary of a a pretty good idea of the spectrum of the 100 different foods that I grew.
1: And uh, then you said you foraged like 200 different things, and that was probably from a lot of shared knowledge. But was there maybe a core of those that were actually like fed you in in a significant way?
0: Yes, definitely. And of of the 300 different foods that I grew and foraged, the reality is, is that yeah, it's a really it's a fairly small group of foods that actually was the important foods to that a small percentage. A, a lot of those foods I only tried once or twice or had a little bit of. Yeah, as far I can as the, live on that if I have to. But <laughs> yeah, as far as the foods that I foraged that were the most meaningful, fishing was the big one. Uh, deer, you know, roadkill deer in Wisconsin. I harvested five deer. In Florida, coconuts. I probably ate a few hundred coconuts, you know, high in oil, fat, some protein. Um, Coconut water, also called nature's Gatorade, making coconut milk as well and coconut butter. So coconuts and then um, mushrooms. I foraged a lot of mushrooms, probably 20 different – 15 or 20 different species. Lots of fruit. Um, The fruit was – some of it was wild, you know, in the countryside like apples in Wisconsin or – um, star fruit in in Florida, citrus, there's a lot of wild citrus all over the state, left over. Um, and then some of that was urban foraging, you know, going to areas where there's just huge fruit trees with fruit just falling onto the sidewalks and onto the streets. Um, and then salt from the ocean and for caffeine, I got that from yapon holly, which is a native tree that I know also grows over in Texas. And and then greens, lots of high nutritious and medicinal uh, greens, you know, wild greens, some growing in lawns and then some that, you know, grows out in more natural settings. So
1: you, you never really got sick. You, we talked about some of the health challenge with, you know, body composition and what have you, but you never really came down during this with any kind of what you would call an actual illness.
0: Correct. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, had a queasy stomach from time to time, usually from eating too much or honestly from not sleeping enough. If I don't get good sleep, then my digestion's not as good. So like, you know, minor things like that, but definitely went through the entire year without getting sick once. Um, And for me, that was, you know, natural medicine. So I made my own elderberry syrup, I foraged the elderberries, and then I had bees for honey. Um, and I, that's a natural uh, cold and flu um, preventative. So I took that almost every day. Um, I grew turmeric and ginger, which are two important medicines to me. Garlic, another great one. I fermented garlic and honey and um, just also ate it fresh. Um, very nutrient-dense foods, you know, the saying, let thy food be thy medicine. I mean, I, I subscribe to that. It's about putting quality foods into our bodies and not things into our bodies that, that shouldn't be there or don't need to be there. So high-nutrient-dense foods. Moringa is called the vitamin tree or the tree of life. It's one of the most nutrient-dense um, foods on the planet and, or most, most nutrient-dense plants on the planet, and that I had every day. And when I traveled, I made a moringa powder, which was my own multivitamin that I could carry with me. So yeah, I, I really I think it was a beautiful test of that that statement. Um, Let thy food be thy medicine, and I I think that I think that it's a, it was a beautiful test of that that worked out. And here it is three months later, and now for the first time I feel uh, today I feel a little crappy because I actually had I drank a few drinks two nights ago, and and uh, it, and now you know. <laughs> back into this this world of putting things in my body that I shouldn't, and now for the first time I'm actually feeling the, the most run down and, like, I sh- I need to recover.
1: But By drinks, you mean alcoholic
0: beverages? Alcoholic, yeah, I had, like, but two didn't beers. You,
1: did, uh, but didn't you drink, like, mead and stuff
0: like that while you were on this I thing? Ha- I had honey wine, and I actually – I visited someone who um, – who was is very into doing their own ho- home brews, and they had I think it's what's called a spectrometer, and we tested the alcohol, and it was only two percent. Oh, so oh. it was it was <laughs> as close to not being alcohol as it as it could be. It was delicious, more like a kombucha, okay, um, than a, than an alcohol. Wow, I mean, it, which is great for me because I don't actually like to be drunk. I don't like to be yeah. buzzed, but um, I love fermented foods. Yeah.
1: That's a uh, that's a that's a really sweet mead, man. That's
0: <laughs> or maybe it was yeah. more
1: like you said more is like more like somehow during because usually you get a like a kombucha type thing with that type of, of, of fermentation, or you get a, an alcoholic fermentation. You Usually don't get both. Maybe like one took over from the other because usually once that it's, it's a big thing with me. I love to make meads, and once that starts. Mm. It's it's going to go to the yeast tolerance, and I know a very few yeasts with a tolerance that low. But that's interesting. What I've noticed since we last talked, I went on a diet very, very heavily toward the meat fat side of things, the ketogenic style thing. I've lost almost 40 pounds, and wow. I stopped drinking cold. And then when I started allowing myself a drink or two again, I would have like one drink Saturday, something like that. And what I noticed after that was the one that I felt bad but I'd have, like, a glass of wine. I mean a real glass, like four-ounce typical serving. And if I did that at, like, 8 o'clock at night, 8.30, I was done. I was knocked mm. out to go to sleep. And it's weird what happens when you take something away, which alcohol, while we can enjoy it, is a toxin. Uh, yeah. but when we reintroduce it, it, it seems to have a different effect on us.
0: I am not into alcohol. I mean, I love the concept of making your own alcohol, yeah, but I'm really not into it. It's a toxin, and my life would be better without it. And it, my my life is better without it. I, uh, you know, th- drinking the other night was the f- first time that I've been drunk in like three years, and I, it'll probably be the f- last time <laughs> my, for another three another years three until years. I forget. I, I do have one tip on on
1: elderberries for you on your next adventure, assuming mm. you have a freezer of some sort. Freeze mm-hmm. them. Don't pick them. Freeze them. Cut the cluster. Throw the freezers and uh, throw them in a bag. Throw the bag in the freezer for about an hour, and the elderberries come flying off the ends without staining anything. Mm. It's the easiest, efficient. Way to post- it's efficient, assuming
0: you have a place to freeze things, uh, which I think yep. you did in Florida. I think yeah, you had, a small yeah I had a chest freezer. I had a freezer and to have I, I I wanted to do this project off the grid, that was my original plan, and I, my original plan was to do everything by bike and not even like you know, get in cars really. Yeah. I remember that was my first initial idea, but whew, I could not have done that. And to have done this without a freezer wow. wow. That yeah. would have been uh I can't imagine it.
1: Well and you can you can do a freezer off grid, but like you said, you started with basically yeah. here's somebody's yard. Good luck, Rob, right? Yeah. So, like, people that are trying to move more toward this, it's a marathon, not a sprint. And yeah. I think if you look at a year in a human lifetime, it's like a 100-meter dash versus, like, a marathon. And yeah. so I think that, you know, there are things that maybe you have to do a little differently if you want to do things within a time frame or under other restrictions. Because you went, like, you were talking about restricted Your life was pretty restricted as to what you could and couldn't do. Um, I know people that have kind of gone on things like this, but it's been like everything had to be foraged, grown, or bartered. Well, mm. that opens up a whole uh, plethora of options you didn't have.
0: Yeah, right? bartering. You're
1: bartering with. Then you know, I mean, that's that's buying in a different way. So you you really went hardcore with this, and that's what you do. I mean. I've seen some of your other projects. You you do things – and again, I've, what I've always loved about your work is one of the most powerful phrases in the world to me is, if they can, I can too. Mm. And the more – and we've talked about, again, how this is really not extreme, but extreme in relation to – the way people live every day, the more extreme that example is, the more it calls other people to be able to do for themselves.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I I take things to the extreme just to give people something to look to and to strive towards. And, you know, I've seen it. It's like I've seen comments where people are like, wow, we already grew a lot of our own food, but we had never thought about about, uh, this or that. And they're like, we're going to do – more next year. And that's the goal is for the people who are already striving and already have been on this path for decades. By me taking it to this extreme, I can inspire them to go further or give them ideas of how they go further. But at the same time, I tackle things in a way where I keep it also pretty easy to understand for beginners. And my goal is to get people who have never grown anything before or never forged before or never thought about where their electricity or their water comes from or just any of these elements of basic existence to, to jump into that and make small changes for the first time. So, and at the same time, I get, I get to tickle my own fancy of asking these questions. Is it possible to go this far? Like, Just as a personal quest, I get to experience and experiment with that at the same time.
1: Well, and people pay attention when you do the things that you do right if you the easier you make it, the less people pay attention to it, and therefore the less impact it has so um, the 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 great adventurer always has the the, the the greater following of people that wish they could do some part of the adventure so I think if you want to be an example, sometimes you have to do things a little bit more extreme uh, than 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 because i don't I, the reason i 'm even having this part of this conversation with you is I, I always want people to understand when I bring someone like you on. You're not saying everybody should go do exactly what you did. You're saying take this example and figure out what you can do that works in your life. Because if we all do a little bit, it has a huge impact.
0: Yeah, I absolutely don't think that everybody or maybe even anybody should grow and forage 100% of their food. Yeah. What's the point in that when we have community? It's all about working together as community to meet our needs. So, so I guess I would venture to say that nobody needs to do what I did, um, it wouldn't be the most efficient way to meet our needs or design our communities, um, or our social lives or any of those things. So it's, it's, it's taking it to the extreme because it creates the conversation. You know, it's great to be on here talking with you, but it also like by me taking it to the extreme, I get mainstream media to talk about this because they can use headlines like, you know, man, man, goes a year without grocery stores and that's something that can be interesting to the general public and that you know mainstream media can pick up on and so you know that's another part of the strategy and then the other element is just that i don't compete within people within our movement because my i just my goal is only to empower but when it comes to the fact that most of the messaging of this world to this world is is You know, trying to make us buy things and feel like we need to fit in. Then I need to compete with those messages. I need to try to rise above that and I need to get mainstream media to, to get this conversation. And so I have to compete against the, the tens of thousands or millions with the millions of messages every day that are going out that are largely, you know, garbage, but, but being pushed by, by mainstream media. And so I I have to, I have to compete with that and doing these crazy things. successfully does
1: one of the things that's really important to my audience is pushing back and taking power away from big agriculture that's something that i think you know when i first started this show in 2008 it was and i started talking a lot about growing your own food and all and a lot about different plant types and all and i was always like with the name like the survival podcast i wonder how this is gonna go over when I'm talking Mm. about you know planting a Nanking cherry tree and a guy tuned in because he found me with survival on iTunes and it it resonated like it was universal and I think it's because like I say you know you you are going to eat every day and if you don't eat long enough you're going to die so it is core to our survival as an individual and as a species and when we look at Big Ag I will say this they do feed the world but what they feed the world I'm not exactly in love with and it's not just that I I think a diet that is mostly based on, you know, five crops has many weaknesses from a nutritional standpoint. I think when we have a tremendous number of people pretty much living on corn because it's in everything, there's tremendous nutritional deficiencies there, but the control mechanisms are huge. What, what do people do so that they they don't need to rely on again, we don't you're not a purist where like, oh, you, you you bought something today at a store. Oh, I won't talk to you, right? You're not like <laughs> that, right? But yeah. like how do they reduce the need to do that?
0: Yeah. So yeah, there's a lot of things and, and I agree. I would say the central tenant of my life is escaping big ag, taking power back from big ag and empowering other people to take power back from big ag and put the power of our food into our own hands because food is – it's like you control the food you control the population you you can like you've heard it many times you control the seed you control the population simply because we need food to exist it's it's just that it's just that simple we all need food and so i you know basically some of the things that i recommend one is growing some of your own food even if it's just a little bit even if it's just if you live in the city some herbs on your balcony or some tomato pots on your, on your, on, you know, on a balcony or, or I meant to say herbs in like a windowsill even, or joining a community garden, because it's not just the small amount of food you grow. It's revolutionizing your mind in that you see like, okay, I can plant a seed and that can turn into hundreds of small tomatoes or, uh, you know, peppers, or I can, I can put in this little tiny starter, Plant, and then I can be eating greens from that, like collard greens, for the next months. And seeing that, you know, like Ron Finley said, says growing your own food is like printing your own money, that it's abundance, that you can just create abundance around you. So, growing some of your own is a big one because you get food, but also it, it's a way to revolution, revolutionize the mind. Other things would be, um, trying to buy food locally as much as possible from small farms that are outside of that system so supporting local farmers and gardeners and then especially ideally ones that are that have you know standards that are working with nature rather than against it i use the term organic but i'm not talking about USDA or any particular label it's talking to the people and asking them what their practices are that's another one. Um, and then another big one is eating less packaged foods and more whole foods because corporations are really able to adulterate foods when they, when they are processing them to a way where you can't tell what's really in them and they can add all these ingredients, these stabilizers, these chemicals, these preservatives, these flavor enhancers, the natural flavors and everything. So if you simply eat more whole foods, that drastically reduces the power of big ag to trick um, so and then that would mean less packaged foods less processed foods um, those would probably be like a lot of the the major things i would say as far as you know taking power back from big ag
1: you know there's a lot in that and here's one of the things that i extrapolate from it i'll often tell people to say you know what should i grow in my garden and i'm like lettuce and other greens that's mm-hmm. my first recommendation. But it doesn't have a tremendous amount of nutritional value. Uh, no, it doesn't have a lot of caloric value. It has tremendous nutritional value. Mm-hmm. There's a difference yeah. there. So first, we have to understand. Then the other thing you have to understand is, well, if you're buying that, let's say you eat a salad a day or so, what are you paying for it? And you'll find the average person, if they're especially if they're buying like an organic product, they're going to be paying between 4 and $7 a pound for you know mixed organic greens, arugula, lettuce, spring mix, stuff like that. Okay, so for every pound of that you buy, or for every pound of that you grow, you didn't buy a pound. Mm-hmm. Okay, so now there's 4 to $7 that you have available. Now, if you're buying meat and you're buying factory meat from the grocery store, instead of looking at, well, what does it cost to buy grass-fed beef from the farmer down the road, and looking at it as a total cost, what's the differential? And you'll find that, well, for every one or two pounds of lettuce you buy, or you grow... You can go buy a pound from that local producer of grass-fed beef where the cows eating what it's supposed to because cows actually – I don't know if you know this, They eat grass. That's what they're <laughs> supposed to eat. Right? You can go now buy – so, so, grow two pounds of lettuce and go, go buy a pound of beef that effectively now is the same price as if you would have bought the so-called cheap product, which is a cow that just – if you ever want to convince yourself not to buy factory meat, take a trip to a CAFO. Mm. And, and you will not – I, honest to God, I don't think most people would be able to live with themselves after they did it. Yeah. Um, what did it for me, I had to go out – long ago, I had to go out to Lubbock, and I was out in West Texas, and we drove by one.
0: Mm.
1: And it was a pit in in my stomach that, like, I really don't want to be part of this. And But, you know, so now, effectively, a person with a garden can grow beef. If you start to look at things that way, and you start to stop trying to think I need to, because again, you know, we want people to learn from you. Instead, of try to like you said. I love that phrase. Nobody needs to do this, right? <laughs> and maybe nobody should do this. But now, if I look at well, what can I produce on my property that can take back enough of my own personal resources that I can now reallocate my resources to do better? Yeah, and that's a totally different way of thinking. Like, how do I fit a cow on a quarter acre? Well, you don't, stupid. That's not – cows don't want to live on a quarter acre. Rabbits live in the corner of a quarter acre in a hutch, right? So now we get a bag bag mower and we can take clover and grass and feed rabbits. We can produce meat from that. We can produce lettuce. The rabbits eat the extra scraps. The rabbit fertility goes to the garden. And the money we save goes to the farmer down the road.
0: Yeah. And and, and all of a sudden there's
1: so much more you can – like all of a sudden you realize like a quarter acre. Holy crap. Because there are people that would give their eye teeth in the U.K. for a quarter acre with the allotment system they have. Like, they, yeah. they, they, they can, the fact you tell them, like, well, we, well can you buy a three-bedroom house for a quarter acre with the United States? Well, depending on where you are, fifty seventy thousand dollars 70000 in some places. Yep. And they just, you almost, like, see their, like, jaw just <laughs> hit the floor. And Like, I had a guy on our Zello channel. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Zello, but we have a, a Zello channel for our community, and people talk from all over the world. It's like walkie-talkies over a smartphone network. And the guy was in Australia, and he started going, can, can can, can a non-citizen buy land in the United States? Like, as soon as he heard what we have available, he wanted to come here and buy land. Yeah. And, and people are sitting here talking about the advantages or the, the opportunities they don't have. And it's like, man, I, I just – I hope when they look at what you've done, they start saying, like, well, what's my excuse? Because what, what took me from just being a guy that had a garden – and like the hunt and fish into being concerned about all this was that stupid first video Jeff Lawton did called greeting the desert. Mm -hmm. And he said, he's just like the most awful thing we ever did, but one of the most powerful things we ever did, because all I came away from it thinking was, dude, if this guy can do this in the desert (laughs) and I'm looking at black clay in my backyard complaining, I got, I got nothing. I, I had, and I was like that week I put in two more garden beds. Because I felt like I, I I have to do this, and that's that 's what I'm hoping people get from your project and what I love about it as well, since you did it all on youtube and it's it 's quote unquote over no it 's not over it's it 's got a life expectancy of whatever Google has right like it 's there it 's there forever now for people
0: yeah absolutely and and i i do I agree that growing your own greens is is definitely one of the best ways to start because they 're super nutrient dense and they're generally fairly easy to grow greens, especially perennial greens, and you get so much out of the space. So that, that is a definitely where I would, you know, tell people to start is, is, is growing greens. And then also herbs is another one. Mm-hmm. You can grow, you know, some herbs really easily, but another thing, like, you know, I don't look at things black and white, and you mentioned, like, yeah, you don't need to have a, a cow on your quarter acre. Um, and it's the same with, like, Herbs and spices. Now, spices make sense to ship around the world because you can you can pack enough spices onto one shipping container for you know hundreds of thousands of people. But you could fill a shipping container with bottled water that would be gone in a few minutes of people drinking that water. Um, You know, alcohol doesn't. You know, shipping beer across the world is mostly shipping water. That doesn't make sense but shipping dried items like that makes a lot of sense. So that's just probably the most important thing that I would say like that if I could get people to do just one thing, it would be to not think black and white. Nothing is. You know, veganism versus eating meat, not black and white. Zero waste versus, you know, creating some garbage. Like for example, this year I used plastic bags. I never thought that I would do that again, but try preserving as much food as I wanted to in jars in the freezer, and now my freezer's got half the amount of space. Um, point is, is that like, you, you, you know, when you really look at the issues, you realize that nothing's black and white, and I think that's one of the most important things that we can do is just see that every issue has is got, you know, some things make sense that we wouldn't have expected when we're willing to, to not look at things through a dogmatic lens. You know, what
1: you're making me think of there, I'm not sure how familiar you are with Curtis Stone, but he does Mm. spin farming up in Canada. And when we were, I think it was at Permaculture Voices 2, he made a statement about political ideology. And he basically said, when it comes to doing all these things, put your political ideology in your back pocket. Mm. And he said, now that doesn't mean it's not important. I keep my wallet there, right? So that's it's important, but it shouldn't affect the use of appropriate technology. You know, what is appropriate for the situation at hand? Um, and, and I think that is that is kind of where you're at with that. Like, yeah, a plastic bag. But a plastic bag was the appropriate technology for what you were trying to get done. And we were talking about it later with a group around the fire. And somebody brought that up, and they were quite offended by it. And he said, I said to put your political ideology in your back pocket, not your ethics. Yeah. And mm. so I think we can we can stay true to our ethics without – because I think a lot of stuff gets blurred by politics because as soon as we start thinking that way, we start thinking in modern tribalism. And since that's not what I would do, then that is the other side, and now I'm going to write that off before I understand it and understand how it relates to this situation where if it's just ethics – and that's what I love about permaculture. If it it doesn't harm the earth and it doesn't harm people – and it allows us to put surplus back to the aim of the first two, then we can use it. That's our limitation of design there. Where if we start thinking of, well, that's a democratic ideal, or that's a republican ideal, or that's a Christian ideal, or an Islamic ideal, or anything like that, all of a sudden we start getting blind to what will work best in this situation. And if if we take something and say, because that is not exactly the best we could ever do and we take it away and people starve from it or people go into malnutrition from it, we also have an ethical dilemma in that we're now harming people, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: So what if everybody did decide to
0: live like you? What would, what would that result in? <laughs> That's probably my favorite question. <laughs> um, and I'm sure that you know – you know, you you obviously kind of know part of the answer to that, but it's something that you want to talk about. But Because most people, when they ask that question, they're often coming from this sort of defensive place. Well, what if everybody decided to live with like you? Like, how would society function? The, the one that comes up commonly is like, well, what if everybody decided to forage? Then, you know, our countryside would be ravaged and we would kill off all the animals and Strip all the plants and and people like ask that question, but they they haven't thought further when they ask that question because the the thing is if everybody decided they wanted to live like me, then that would mean that our societal structure yeah. would be drastically transforming if every three hundred twenty million Americans all of a sudden cared about growing and foraging their own food it would mean they changed their minds about life altogether. And they would be rethinking our transportation system, how we get our water, how we treat people, everything would be changing. So if everybody wanted to live like me, then we would be living in a almost different dimension and a different reality, our entire structures would be looking at changing. And it's like, cause and effect if if everybody wanted to forage then they would all also wanting they'd be wanting to be stewards of the land and and working to regenerate the land so that we have places to forage and so on and so on
1: well yeah it's so what that makes me think a very long time ago i did a um interview with a gentleman who was doing a homestead thing but he also had been homeschooled he was homeschooling his kids And we started talking about things, and I said something like, well, did you when you went through your homeschooling, did you learn advanced calculus? And he said, absolutely not. I have no need for it. But if I ever need to know how to do it, I'll learn how to do it when I need to know how to do it. And in a way, that's what you just said. If we needed to know how to do that, because there was enough demand to need to know how to do that, then we would figure out how to do that. We would start designing society based on that instead of an extraction model. Yeah. And if you want to really get a look at being p- not in that in that place, but being pushed in that direction. There was a great BBC documentary uh, done a few years ago. It's free on YouTube. You can watch it. It's called Wartime Farm. Hmm. And it's how the people lived in the countryside during the war. And one of the things they did was they would start what's called a pig club. Because you basically, if you were farming, you didn't do a lot of livestock during that period. And what you did the, I can't remember what they call it, the Ministry of Agriculture, I think, basically took it and then rationed it out because getting fat to people is important. But what you could do is have a pig club and you and probably three other families, because you have to feed the pig from a waste stream because you couldn't take grain to feed the pig. So me, you, and two other families would get together and we would get a pig and we would put the pig in a pigsty. And then we would bring all of our waste stream and share the responsibility of feeding the pig. And then at the end of this we, and it, you know, this isn't modern-day pink pigs. These were big, giant, huge heirloom pigs with massive yields off of them, even when fed this way. Well, that pig would then get cut in half, and the Ministry of Ag would take half that pig and distribute it as part of the ration to the population, because, again, they were at war and under siege. But then the other families would, the families that did the pig, would split that half of a pig. And it was a tremendous advantage. And these were people that could have just grown a pig, Ten years earlier on their own. They would have never even thought about it this way. So from the restriction, in this case a restriction coming from the state, they figured out how to do this and the state made a deal with them. Okay, you can do that if you do this other thing. Well, what you're describing is instead of the state imposing the restriction, the ethics of society causing society to, to then find its own restriction to make this thing work. In fact, it sounds like the scary word anarchism to me, you know, (laughs) Uh, ethical anarchism. And so if if you say, well, what if everybody did this? I would ask you, Rob, if you had a quarter of a hog as part of what was in your freezer during that one year, how much easier would your life have been? So I've never had a quarter hog, so how much meat is that? i mean depending on like 100 it, pounds uh, let's say 50 200 pound dressed weight 50 pounds yeah 50 pounds of yeah. of pork and fat so you're probably looking at you know four jars of yeah. Yeah. pure lard
0: yep that would have that would have that would have changed everything having having that resource i mean you could eat what's considered uh that could that would mean you could eat 3 ounces of meat a day for sure and have that Um, so yeah, that, that, that right there would have changed everything. And one of the biggest challenges of the year is that I didn't, I actually didn't have fat, um, and try having no oil and no fat. And that just completely changes the way that you're used to cooking. So yeah, that absolutely, that would have been a, a game changer.
1: So now think of your, your, uh, hometown in Wisconsin. Did they have oak trees there?
0: Oh, yeah. (laughs) Lots
1: of trees. So the most expensive pork in the world is the Spanish Iberico pork that's finished on acorns. Mm. So now if you have a situation where you have an abundant natural resource like acorns that can make up a large part of the hogs diet, the cooperation of two or three families to grow and raise a pig, and then if you talk to a farmer who does things sustainably like Darby Simpson from our community, he'll tell you never raise one pig Mm. because it's easy to raise 10 as it is to raise one. Mm. so raise 10 and sell 8 or sell 9 and then all of a sudden what you just pointed out where people will come at you almost from an antagonistic view what if everybody tried to do this well instead of saying what if everybody tried to do this as an antagonist I would prefer to ask the question how could everybody do this or what would we do if not every the hell with everybody what if most people or a large majority of people wanted to do this what would that look like and I think that as soon as you you go from making a statement to asking a question, you're asking the mental computer in your head to solve for X, right? So we either close the mind with a statement or we open the mind with a question. And yep. now what if we open 12 minds instead of one, and those 12 minds are working together, what can we come up with? Because I'm, I'm spitballing here, right? But yeah. I know this stuff works because it's already been done. Add, add, add 10 more people to this discussion – with a common goal and what can we come up with
0: yeah no that's very exciting it's all about community i mean yeah after the challenge that i went through this year the most exciting thing is the idea of people working together to create food sovereign communities i mean imagine whole communities that produced all of their own or all of their own food and lived in balance with the environment around them like that's that's the real dream right there not one person but a whole community of people being able to do that and live out their ethics um and do it in an efficient way where they can still be pursuing their other passions in life i mean that sounds amazing that's something that that's what i'd like to see
1: what about a neighborhood that produced 50 percent of its own food yeah just a neighborhood and then it's hard to say it can't be done Yep. Right, and then then you also don't get a lot of the uh, well. I would if everybody did it. Well, I don't know. Why don't we find out? Right. Mm. So the first step on this to me often is gardening though. That's that's kind of the great place for people to start because you can go do that. I'd love to get more cooperation, but I've also found like if you want your neighbor to put a garden in, put a garden in. Like that's a, the best way to get your mm. neighbor to put put a garden in. Let them look over the fence, hand them a tomato, hand them a pepper. Uh, my sister in law, the first time I handed her a pepper out of my garden, the first question was. Can you help us put a garden in at our school like that 's the way to start so what are your what are your philosophies for getting started with gardening, maybe over tips because I think i don 't know about you, I kind of get like like, well, give me some tips like uh, the way you think about this is more important, I think,
0: yeah, absolutely. My tips are more of a you know foundational philosophy way of thinking, so first of all, when you're deciding to start gardening don't walk down the grocery store aisles and ask what do I like to eat instead go to the local community gardens go to the people who have been growing food for decades in the area and ask them what grows so well here and so abundantly that it would be hard to kill it what plants have the fewest pets pests and have the highest output don't need much water can handle drought um, don't need high nutrients um, that right there, that's where people should start. Where, the, where like, you know, so many people walk away with a black thumb, feeling like they have a black thumb. That's because they went to the grocery store and they tried to grow a mango in place that mangoes don't grow. Um, and instead, if they grow what's been growing in that area for hundreds of years, then nature does most of the work for them. So that would be one of the biggest ones. Um, another is to do it with community. There's no reason that we have to do it alone. People always say to me, like, oh, there's nobody in my area doing this. But I highly, highly doubt that. I think they probably just don't have their eyes open. Um, They're not seeking it out. You find what you're seeking. You know, I've walked by delicious fruit trees for decades growing up, never realizing that food was there while going to the grocery store and buying fruits. And it's... If you don't, if you're not looking for it, it's unlikely that you're going to find it. So, like, really seek out community and find out who's already doing things in your area. So, you can go to the local library. If there's a health food store, that's a good place to try to find people that might be growing food or foraging. Um, do do internet searches. Check social media for groups or meetups. Um, you can find out if there's local um like agricultural extension offices at the university and find master gardening classes um you know the reality is that a million tens of millions of people do grow some of their own food another thing is like seek out um people from different ethnicities if you're white um like uh, the 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 white culture is one that has lost more of like, it, I don't know, in, in a lot of areas, they're the ones that have lost the connection with food the most. But if you meet the people from, you know, Southeast Asia or South America or the Caribbean, like a lot of them still grow a lot of their own food. Um, so seeking often those people out, they might not use the word permaculture, but they might be like the best permaculturists that you'll meet. Um, those would be two things that come to mind.
1: Awesome, man. So, what are maybe some of your basic suggestions on foraging?
0: Well, the absolute most important part of foraging—this is not something that I came up um, with—is only eat something if you're 100% certain of what it is. That's the key, the number one (laughs) rule to foraging. And then you'll never—you won't have any problems. You only eat something if you're 100% certain of what it is, and you do that. One great thing is find local foragers. See if there's a local. Forager that either has classes that you can go out with, or maybe they don't teach classes formally, but they'd be happy to take you under their wing. Um, that, and that's the same with gardening. Like, if you can find a local gardener, what they usually need is help with weeding. And if you'll help them with weeding, then they're likely to share their seeds, their plants, their knowledge with you. And the same with foragers. How can you, you know, lend a hand? You know, like sort of a, an apprenticeship, but it doesn't have to be formal. But how can you help them in, in a way that they're going to share their knowledge and their resources with you, and you know, establish that loyalty because because you deserve it because you're actually really wanting to help them. Um, with foraging, my recommendation is to start with just a few plants, or uh, you know, rather than trying to you know read every single book and know every single plant. Start with just a few of the easiest ones to identify in your area. For example, most people can do raspberries and blackberries and blueberries or, or mulberries or apples or pears, plums. Um, so start with eat ones that you feel confident and get – if you've never eaten something directly from the land, you know just experience that with the, some of the easier foods that you can feel comfortable with and um, start with easy-to-identify ones and then build it from there like – You know, mushrooms, a lot of people are afraid of mushrooms, but the best way to start is to start with just one, two, three of the easiest to identify common mushrooms. For example, um, chanterelles are are one that are present throughout much of the United States or chicken of the woods. Um, Those would be two that are pretty unmistakable and, you know, an easy place to start.
1: I think what I would add to that is when you—I I don't care how sure you are of something—if you've never eaten it before, go easy the first time you eat it, because you don't know what reaction you might have to it. You know, um, like I love one of my favorite wild greens is lamb's quarters. I—I I compete with my ducks for it in the spring. You know, and I have seen people that if they eat a lot of it. Might have somewhat of like a skin reaction to it or whatever, like because they're allergic to the pollen or whatever. I'm not sure why, but some people do seem to have reactions. So, like, when you start foraging, when you, I think when you eat anything that you've never eaten before, even if it tastes really good, eat a little bit of it and see if you have a reaction before you eat a lot of it. Like, the rat, a rat is smart enough to do that. That's why rats are hard to eradicate with, with poisons because a rat, when it finds a new food, will. Eat a very small amount of it and be like, well, okay, did, did anything bad happen? So be at least as smart as a rat because uh, this is a survival podcast. You want to talk about a, an animal that survived, uh, maybe in some ways to our detriment, uh, the rat, right? So use I call it the rat technique because no, the reason I even do that is because then you never forget it. Like, ah, I should eat a little bit of that first.
0: Yeah, that's a, that's absolutely. That's, that's a basic, absolutely with foraging. I actually did find one fruit tree this year and I was, I was out biking and I was just, I, I don't think I had had enough fruit at the time. It was like sort of a, a a season of not a lot of abundance of fruit. I found this fruit tree. I did not know what it was, but I looked at it and I was like, this thing has to be edible. (laughs) And I tasted it and I tasted it. It was delicious and I just like, I ate like four of them and they're the size of like apples. And I was like, I am not supposed to be doing no. this. But I couldn't I just but I did. And they turned out to be white sapote, which I was okay. I was I was right. They're totally totally edible, but like yeah, that's what that was me major majorly breaking that rule. First you only eat something if you know what it is. I didn't. Then you only taste a little bit the first day and see how it goes with your system. And I just went full on, you know, I just, 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 just eating the heck out of them.
1: Be, be careful with that in the future, man. We need you out yeah. there. You do great stuff. Yeah. I don't want you, I want you to be taken out by a, a wild edible that you shouldn't have edible. Uh, yeah. but yeah, man, look, I've enjoyed having you on here again. You want to tell people like how to hook up with you, learn more about you, stay in touch with you. And oh, I almost forgot, like you do have a, you had plans for a book to come out after this. Is that still going? Or trust me, I know how hard that is.
0: Yeah. Yep. I'm am writing the book right now, and um, that will be out December of 2020. So it's a year off. Takes a little time. You know, it takes about nine months with the publisher, and um, so that book will be called Food Freedom. And you can pre-order that um, on my website, just robgreenfield.tv/slash Food book. And 100% of the pro 100% of my proceeds are donated to uh, nonprofits, you know, working to create food, sustainable food systems. So I'm really excited about that book. I, I really think it's going to be impactful. It's really designed to just tear down the globalized food system and help people understand it and empower them. It's a book of solutions, really. Every chapter will talk about what people can do in their communities. Um, to create food sovereignty and food freedom. Um, And then um, YouTube, just youtube.com slash Rob Greenfield. That's a great place to follow me. Definitely watch my recent video I put out. It's 15 minutes long. It's about this year. I just did an interview with Joel Salatin that's talking about regenerative agriculture. That'd be worth watching. And then also Instagram. Just my Instagram handle is uh, robj. Greenfield, And then you can find me on Facebook as well. But, um, yes, yeah, so that's where you, can, where you can join me.
1: And for folks that are out there rolling down the highway in your car, what have you, listening to this, and you don't have time to write anything down, remember it's just episode 2559 of the Survival Podcast. I'll have links to all of that stuff in the show notes today. And Rob, man, thank you for being with us today. And I, I'm not going to just close out on you either. I want to give you a final word. If you have anything we didn't cover, you want to tell folks, uh, take as much time as you want, and uh, we appreciate you being here today.
0: Oops. Yeah, we talked about what I wanted to talk about. I enjoyed it. I love, you know, I love spending time talking. I hope that one of these times we can do a podcast in person. Hopefully, I visit you in Texas one of these days. And. Uh, I, when I do my year of of food freedom in a temperate climate, I look forward to sharing that story with everybody who listens to you. Well, you
1: have an open platform here. And when you get ready to do that, if there's anything I can do to help out, you just let me know, and uh, I and my community will support what you're doing. I, 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 I tend not to speak for my community, um, but generally when I ask them to do something, uh, they tend to... Uh, to, to want to help out. So I, I, I offer our resources here uh, to help you in your future endeavors because, like I said, we need people like you doing the things that you're doing because it shows other people that then those, things, those things can actually be done.
0: Absolutely. Well, I'll keep doing it. You keep doing it, and
1: we'll keep doing our part. Well, great interview with Rob. and I, I said this several times during the interview, but I want to make sure I kind of close with this here before we wrap the show up. That I really hope that when you look at a guest that I bring on, like Rob Greenfield and the projects that he takes on, or a guest like Jeff Lawton, who is at a level of a designer that most of us could never hope to reach. The the, the amount of experience uh, and the dedication to a single thing uh, and a single concept that Jeff has, for instance, is is beyond what most of us have the, the time or the dedication to do. We live in what people call the real world, etc. Though I think people like Jeff and Rob and others that we bring on from time to time live maybe a little bit more in the real world than the rest of us do when it comes to what the real world really is. It is us who live more in the illusion. But there's good and bad in the modern systems, there really is. And, and and nothing has lifted more people from poverty than the, the current systems that we have, whether we like them or not. And that's one of the things Rob said here, that it, most of these issues are not black and white. It's not on or off. And so when I bring guests on like this, what I hope happens isn't an email that says, hey, Jack. Because you had Rob on, I'm going to go live for a year in somebody's backyard and live 100% of my own. So, you know, it's really isn't practical for most people to do. And 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 as Rob said, when it comes to anybody needing to do it, maybe no one ever needs to do it. Maybe he didn't need to do it. He did it for a reason, and the reason was inspiration. And so, what I want is, hey, Jack, you know, I listened to Rob's interview and. I went to his channel I looked at everything he was doing and I decided you know what that's it I'm I'm pushed over the edge we're putting a garden in or you know because of y'all's discussion I'm going to get with some neighbors and you know we're going to do a, a basically raise a couple pigs together like you were talking about or we're going to put a rabbit hutch in and we're going to start developing fertility and meat for the family and we're still going to go to the store but we're going to take away that one thing that's what this show's always been about is what's the one thing that your one action can take from the system and give to you and do that one thing and then perfect that one thing or at least make that one thing efficient. Buckle it down. Nail it down. Get it to work and then do one more and then do one more and it will not be long. We're in the words of our theme song. If you make your own way, you won't have to drag anybody with you. Others will follow. Follow. That's what today's show was all about. I hope that came across. With that, if you like the show and the work that we do, one of the ways that you can help us out is by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z.com, tspaz.com. You're probably going to do some online shopping this month. It is December, uh, and that means there's probably some things out there that you need to buy as gifts and probably some people that you're looking for gifts for, and I have something for you today that I think is a unique buying opportunity. And it's not like a one-day sale. It doesn't have anything to do with the Christmas sale or anything like that or Black Friday that goes on forever or what have you. It's just a an op- a market opportunity. So one of my favorite companies I've recommended to you guys for years is a company called Anchor, A-N-K-E-R. And the reason I recommend them is, to me, they're like the Costco of consumer electronics. And what I mean by that is, If you look at Costco's biggest competitor, it's the Walmart affiliation Sam's Club, right? And Sam's Club is, we have lots of stuff really cheap. And Costco's mindset in their marketing is, we have the really, really good stuff for a little bit less. And that is what they sell. And that's price-to-value ratio. That's what I'm all about. Anchor does that with their electronics. What they sell isn't... You know, I wouldn't call it a competitor with somebody like Bose when it comes to speakers, which we're talking about today. But I'd say they are that mid-tier, upper-mid-tier quality for a little bit less. And they have some amazing Bluetooth speakers, the Soundcore series. And right now, there's three models that are very, very similar in size and function. They're the Motion B, the Soundcore 2, and the Soundcore Boost. And Anchor does this. They're constantly trying to make their stuff a little bit better and put a little bit more margin and enhance a little bit more discount into it to the consumer. And what they'll do is when they come up with a new product that's designed to replace an old one, they take the old one and they knock the price way down until they sell out all that inventory and then that new one becomes the flagship at that level. Well, what you have here is the the Motion B and the Soundcore 2 are pretty much the same product. Except the Soundcore 2 has a longer-lasting battery. And the Soundcore Boost is the next step up because it goes from having 12-watt speakers to 20-watt speakers. And the Motion B is the old model. It's the one I own. It's being sold right now for $21. This is a $40 Bluetooth speaker all day long. But guess how much the Soundcore 2 is? $40. And it's very clear, and I, can't, I don't know this. I don't have inside information with, with Anchor. I sell a lot of Anchor, but not that much. Um, but I've seen this pattern. It recently happened with the car charger, for instance. They upgraded it, then they knocked the price down, sold the hell out of them, and then stopped selling that older model. So when this happens, you get—you know—it could be a month, it could be three months, it could be four. I don't know. But the pattern is solid with Anchor. They've dropped the motion beat out 21 bucks. So what you got is a little portable Bluetooth speaker for 21 dollars. There's a lot of portable Bluetooth speakers in that price range. Especially at 12 watts power. But I'll tell you how good the sound is with this thing. If you're sitting in a group of people and you have it sitting over to the side of you and you turn it all the way up, you're going to turn it back down because it's going to be too loud. But if you want it that loud and you're by yourself, it doesn't overdrive itself to where it doesn't sound good anymore. So for a small speaker, that's about all you can ask for. I have a $300 Bose Bluetooth speaker. It, it, it does not compare to uh, the anchors. It, it's so much better. But it's also $300. Now, here's the thing about the whole Soundcore line. They have 2X pairing. What that means is two speakers can pair to one device. You now have stereo. You can now go out on your patio with your iPhone or any Bluetooth device and put one in each corner, and you've got stereo sound. Well, with the Motion B being knocked down to $21, you have that for 42 bucks shipped. Now, let's think about how this can be functionally used in other ways. First of all, instead of buying two of the Soundcore 2s, and the battery lasts 24 hours in the Soundcore 2, and the Motion B 12, so you get double the battery length. But you can buy two for pretty much 2 bucks more than the price of one of the one that's a little more expensive. I have this all broken down in the write-up. So now you have two as one, one as none. It's not a prepper item, I know, but you got two. They can go to two different places. If one's battery is dead, you can just swap them out. But they can also pair up and play stereo. What if you have a shop or a garage you've been thinking about putting a sound system in? Just so you can listen to music out there. Well, you probably have power out there. You can plug these in and they charge and run at the same time. So if you had a couple outlets in your garage, you could put two of these things in there for 42 bucks. And every time you walk in, you just pair up and start playing your music. You've got a, you've got a stereo system in your garage or your shop or whatever. I just think there's a lot of functionality here. Oh, by the way, they are IPX seven waterproof. What does that load of jargon mean? It means you can throw it in a bathtub and it'll still work. So you got a speaker that can be immersed underwater, will double pair, last twelve hours, has great quality sound for what it is, and it's on sale for twenty one bucks. I just suggest this is a good item for yourself, it's a good item for a gift, and it's a good item to put in basically low-end surround sound. You know, let's say your kids have an upstairs. If you have a TV that has Bluetooth capability, or you have a Bluetooth adapter on your TV, you can give the kids surround sound in their own little game room for $42. Now, it's not going to be a high-end rumble of walls, but do you really want that anyway? In fact, if your kids like to watch movies, like have movie night in their little room, and instead of having a TV, they have a laptop, and they sit... You could... Pair those up with the computer. It's got Bluetooth, and you know it could be fun. I'm just saying, a lot of lot of utility for 21 bucks a unit. Um, so check it out. Now the Soundcore 2, longer battery life, 40 bucks. I wouldn't buy it, but there's a link if you if you think it's worth it. The Soundcore Boost is got 20 watts instead of 12 watts of power. So that one might if you wanted a little bit higher end surround sound system or or a stereo system in your shop. Um, for a hundred bucks you can get two of those man I, I'm telling you the motion B is a damn good speaker for $21 uh, You can find it in all my items I recommend at tspaz.com and remember if it is on tspaz, I own it I use it uh, I would buy it again and if i didn't if I didn't feel that way about it i wouldn't recommend it to you. Uh, you check out the anchor soundcore line though if you want it higher and louder more power anything in this line, of Soundcore devices, and they go quite a bit larger in size. They're all good. They're all super high quality. And if you get an anchor product with a problem, they're just going to replace it. On that note, guess what? Motion B's been around long enough. That there's a thing called Amazon Renew. They have uh, basically refurbed or pre-owned versions of the Motion B for $16.79. So you can save 4 bucks a unit on them if you want to buy the refurb. I don't recommend that. Save only 4 bucks. I mean, if you buy two of them, you're saving $8. And the reason is I don't have any knowledge of what happens if you get an item from Amazon Renew and you have a problem with it. I know what Anchor's going to do. They're going to stand behind their stuff. They always do. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up with our song of the day. The song of the day today is by Sticks. And um, as I've been saying, we're in concept album week. Uh, so these songs are all from albums that are concept albums. This is a song off of Kilroy was here. Um, and uh, that was a concept album really about censorship of music and the dehumanization and taking away from kind of the middle-class working man is what the concept of that album was all about. Mr. Roboto, in fact, was a guy that was a rock singer that was thrown into a, basically a prison where everything was run by robots. He dressed up like a robot to escape and save the world to the power of rock and roll in a world where rock and roll is censored. You might want to wonder where all this came from. This album was released in 1983, and this is prior to Tipper Gore's bullshit, but it is when the music censorship thing kind of really ramped up, and there was a, a group of Christian conservatives that were very worried that rock and roll was going to turn your children into devil worshipers. I'm not kidding. And they had persuaded the... Uh, arkansas arkansas legislature to pass a law that required an album that had a a you know backwards message where you play the album backwards it had satanic messages in it even though those things weren't real um to have a label <laughs> and sticks was one of the uh, the bands that was uh, cited not because they could find any examples of this that were legitimate and didn't sound like well backwards language um because the name Styx itself is the river that souls were ferried across into hell in some legends. That's the river Styx. That's where the band's name comes from. Um, we don't seem to have a lot of problem with this anymore. We have our own lunacy today. But I think it's, it's probably a good idea once in a while to look back into our past and see the lunacy of the past. Not so that we don't repeat it, because that's just a myth we tell kids to get them to study their history but so that we don't think that the lunacy we have today is anything truly exceptional or different. Just my thoughts. With that, we've wrapped up another episode. Hope you enjoyed it. It's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tougher, even if they don't.